Hi, my name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Jeremiah 51, verses 6 to 7. Escape from Babylon. Each of you run for your lives. Don't perish because of her guilt, because this is the time for the Lord's retribution, a day of reckoning for all that Babylon has done. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. It made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine and went mad. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 18, 1 to 4. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was filled with light because of his glory. He called out with a loud voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a lair for every unclean spirit. She is a lair for every unclean bird and a lair for every unclean and disgusting beast because all the nations have fallen due to the wine of her lustful passion. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the earth became rich from the power of her loose and extravagant ways. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you don't take part in her sins and don't receive any of her plagues. The word of the Lord. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26. How terrible it will be for you legal experts and Pharisees, hypocrites, You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of violence and pleasure-seeking. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of the cup will be clean too. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray tonight. Not only is this the Sunday before the election, but this is also All Saints Day. It's the day where the church throughout the generations has stops and remembers that we're all here because of the faithfulness of others. That there have been generations upon generations upon generations of people who faithfully shared the gospel with others and generations of people who have faithfully discipled others, generations who have lived faithfully in the midst of all that is happening in the place that they find themselves in. And we're called as people to be grateful for all that great cloud of witness and to take our place in that story as well, to live faithfully, to share the gospel with others, to disciple others, and to live faithfully in the place that we find ourselves. So let's pray along those lines today. And maybe even want to think about the person who shared the gospel with you or the person who discipled you and and take a moment to thank God for them tonight. Father, we are profoundly grateful for the faithfulness of your people through the ages, of people who at great cost And even at the loss of their own lives, shared the gospel, spoke the truth, proclaimed that Jesus is king. We thank you for the ways in which people have discipled others, 
sometimes in locked rooms behind closed doors, sometimes in prison, sometimes out in public. We are grateful for the faithfulness of your people because we know that we are here because of all of those who have come before us. And so we thank you for teachers and Sunday school teachers. We thank you for kids ministry volunteers and youth pastors. We thank you for youth volunteers and college campus ministry workers. We thank you for moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and high school friends and grocery store managers and neighbors across the street. We thank you for their faithfulness. And help us to take our line in the, our, our place among that great company. Thank you for filling us with your spirit and empowering us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Help us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Great to see you tonight, those of you who are in the room, and those of you who are watching online, either on the website or Facebook or YouTube. We've got three weeks left in this series called The Last Word Through the Last Book of the Bible, the Book of Revelation. And tonight we're going to be in Revelation 17 and 18, talking about the demise of the great prostitutes. Uh, so that word will come up a few times tonight. For those of you who have kids in the room, I'm sorry, it's in the text. You can have that conversation a little bit later on. Uh, chapter 17 really details the story of the great prostitutes fall. And chapter 18, it, it mixes in a couple of worship songs, but primarily it's the funeral songs of her clientele. It begins this way in Revelation 17, verse one. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, this is what we talked about last week, spoke with me and said, come, he said, I will show you the judgment upon the great prostitute who is seated on the deep Waters. As this passage unfolds, we see that this great prostitute is given the name Babylon or fallen Babylon. And in John's day, it would have been an association with Rome, but not exclusively there. But this is just what John and his readers would have had at the forefront of their mind. And what we see is that this introduction is repeated almost identically just a couple of chapters later that we see in Revelation 21 verse 9, then one of the angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues spoke with me almost identical and said, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So here at the end of Revelation in these last couple of chapters, we find that Revelation becomes a tale of two cities. It becomes a contrast between the two capital cities of the two kingdoms. The kingdom of God reigned over by Christ and the kingdoms of this world that are being influenced by the dragon and the beast and this prostitute who is now being talked about. Here we see primarily this tale becoming about Babylon the prostitute and Jerusalem the bride. And what we see actually throughout scriptures is that the Bible actually often uses sexual fidelity, 
or sexual faithfulness as a metaphor for spiritual fidelity or spiritual faithfulness. It takes the idea of what the expectations are in the scriptures for God's people as it relates to their sexuality and says that this is a metaphor for the people of God's relationship with Yahweh himself. The people of God are called to a very particular sexual ethic, a sexual fidelity that is celibacy and singleness and monogamy in marriage. This is what the scriptures say. This is how the people of God live out their sexual identity in the same way that we're called to that sexual fidelity, a unique ethic. We're called to a spiritual fidelity, a covenant loyalty that says we are called to worship Jesus and Jesus alone, that we have an exclusive commitment to worship and to follow Jesus in the same way that we have an exclusive commitment to sexual practice being within the confines of marriage. And so often throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, we find that Israel's idolatry is described as adultery, that this image is being used back and forth. And here, now we have the faithful bride of Christ and the unfaithful whore of Babylon in some of the translations. And immediately we're kind of thinking, oh, but why this language? It's kind of crass. We're like, didn't John have a good grandmother to teach him? Like, John, that is not proper language to be used in public. You're going, this is going to go in the Bible, John. Like, there, there are appropriate metaphors that you should use. Don't use this one. Find something else. There's just certain things you shouldn't talk about at the dinner table or in a worship service. But why does John use it? Why is it that John says this is actually the apt metaphor for what's going on? What happens is, is that in the image of prostitution, we see that sex, money, and power are all brought together. That this is what's happening, is that sex, money, and power are all being brought together in this image. Prostitution is the commercialization of sex. It monetizes the human body and in its very core is dehumanizing it is akin to slavery. In fact, oftentimes throughout history, those who are prostitutes are enslaved in some capacity. That these things are all wrapped up and therefore it usually involves power dynamics. There is oppression and violence that's taking place in the middle of that. And so what John understands in this vision is that spiritual infidelity, our movement away from what it means to be the people of God, often manifests itself in the misuse of sex, money, and power. This is what happens that as we drift away from our covenant loyalty to Yahweh of what it means to be the people of God, oftentimes that manifests itself in the misuse or abuse of these things. It begins to look like using bodies, using resources, and using our influence or authority or power in ways that violate God's intention for those things begins to move us outside of God's will. And that's exactly what we see in every incarnation of fallen Babylon. That in every incarnation of what, Paul, or what John is seeing here, we see the misuse and abuse of these things. As the scripture goes on, it says this. It says, the kings of the earth, 
those who are the local rulers over governments all around the Roman Empire. They've committed sexual immorality with, the, with her, and those who live on the earth have become drunk with the wine of her whoring. And then he brought me in a spirit-inspired trance to the desert, and there I saw a woman seated on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. We get this fantastic beast image again. And the woman wore purple and scarlet clothing, not because she was a Minnesota Vikings fan, but for other reasons. And she glittered with gold and jewels and pearls. And in her hand, she held a gold cup. But it was full of vile and impure things that came from her activity as a prostitute. The picture that John sees here is a woman seated on a scarlet beast. This is that same beast that we talked about from Revelation chapter 13. It's the beast that derives its power from the dragon, derives its power from Satan himself. And the, the imagery that John is using is coming from Daniel 7, where Daniel sees this image of beast after beast after beast sort of conquering the world. It's a symbol for all of the violent, oppressive human empires throughout the world. In John's day, it would have been clear for him, oh, this is talking about the Roman Empire, or previously it talked about the Greeks or the Assyrians or the Babylons, and we can go forward in history and think, oh, this is referring to places like uh, Nazi Germany and the things that we saw happening, the kind of oppressive tactics that are happening there, but not limited in that capacity to one specific reference, but all of the places where we see humans using violence to oppress others and control what is happening in the world. And so seated on this beast, gaining power from the beast is this woman. Because built on the back of every beast are systems for controlling those who've been conquered. That the beast comes in and conquers, and then on top of that, systems have to be put in place to control those who have been conquered. Political systems and judicial systems, and economic systems, even religious systems that get built on top of that to try to make sure that the conquered stay conquered. And these systems, they promise power, and prosperity, and pleasure, and peace. Look at how great life will be if you just let us run the world this way but they're actually not what they seem. This is how it was with Rome. Rome promised the world Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome is going to bring peace to the entire known world. And with that peace is going to come prosperity. Our military is going to go forth and conquer everyone. And then we're going to build roads and we're going to build buildings. And all of these things will prosper. But John is seeing that it's an illusion. It sounds attractive, but under the surface is actually quite sinister. All of its pomp hides its plunder. All of its luxury serves to mask its lust. Its, its success actually obscures the suffering that it causes others. Here's words from one of Rome's own historians. This is how their own historians described what they were doing. They, the Romans, have plundered the world 
stripping naked the land in their hunger. They loot even the ocean. They are driven by greed if their enemy happens to be rich. And if their enemy is poor, then by ambition. Neither the wealth of the East or the West can satisfy them. They are the only people who behold wealth and indigence with equal passion to dominate. If you're rich or poor, we don't care. We want to dominate you. We want to conquer you. They ravage, they slaughter, they seize by false pretenses. And all of this they hail as the construction of empire. And then this line. And when in their wake, nothing remains but a desert, they call that peace. They call that peace. See, John gets this vision of this woman and she's stunning. She's inviting. She's not the devil, but she's wearing Prada. She's got her bling, her rings, and her rustic cuffs. She's covered. She's glittering. She looks attractive. She's holding this golden cup. It's exquisite and expensive and enticing, and everything on the outside looks beautiful. The inside, it's filled with filth. It reminds me of that scene in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when they bring out the turkey and they set it on the table and it looks beautiful, and then they cut it, and, and it's just all burnt and rotten. I mean, nobody remembers that scene. It's not Christmas season yet, but that's your preview for that moment. But it actually recalls Jesus' own, own comments to the Pharisees. Oh, you're worried about all this stuff on the outside. But the inside, what about the inside of the cup? What about the inside of what's going on? See, here's the deal, friends. Sin is always seductive. It's always seductive. It always looks good. It always looks attractive. Satan's scheme from the very beginning has been to take what's deadly and to make it look life-giving. To take what's actually deadly and destructive and make it look beneficial. This is what happened in the garden. They walk up to the tree and they see that it's beautiful and that it could make them like God. It's not like they saw something that didn't look tasty and look like it was going to give them indigestion. It saw something that was like, this is going to help us. The scheme of the enemy is always to make sin look beneficial whether it's economically beneficial or relationally beneficial or vocationally beneficial, it's always like, look at what's going to come of this. Look that there's going to be something that is going to actually be helpful or something that's going to be life-giving. His whole tactic is to convince us of this so that then we'll start to justify it to ourselves and others. Right. And think about the times that maybe you or somebody you know has been caught in something that you knew to be wrong. Caught in sin in some capacity. And what's the language that typically follows? No, 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 you don't understand. Even in our own minds. No, 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 it's different this time. No, 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 that, that's, not so, that's not what's going on here. There's an exception here. No, 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 that's, that's not, there's actually, look, look at this, look at the benefit over on this side. And we can convince ourselves so much, like this is okay, 
Because look at what's going to happen over here. This is always what the enemy has done to make us think that we're exceptional and that the rules don't apply to us or to think that this is now exceptional, that there's some sort of loophole, that now this isn't sin anymore, that there's something that's changed the game in some capacity. But sin always does this. It promises power and pleasure and prosperity and even peace. But all it can do is provide cheap counterfeits to those things. And those cheap counterfeits are costly for us and for others. They have costly consequences. They're actually not cheap at all. Because not only is sin seductive, sin is incredibly self-destructive. That it actually turns in on itself. This is what John sees later on. It says, then he said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and crowds and nations and languages. And as for the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute and they will destroy her and strip her bare. They will devour her flesh and burn her with fire. Terrible. Here you see, This is built upon this and they start to turn in on themselves. This is what sin does. Whatever is built on violence will meet a violent end. Jesus said it. He says, whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. Whatever is built on taking from others will eventually be taken away. Think about those who go about life unjustly trying to gain money and doing whatever it takes for more and more and more and more and to hoard and hoard and hoard and hoard. And money and the bottom line becomes the primary thing. And ethics are out the window. Nothing else matters but the bottom line. Those folks end up impoverished in some way. If they don't end up impoverished financially, they end up impoverished in every other aspect of life. Things get taken Think about those who misuse sex. Sex becomes filled with shame and mistrust. The very things that impede the intimacy that they're trying to seek. Suddenly that's not even possible anymore because of all the hurt and the pain and the confusion that gets wrapped up in it. And those who abuse power typically end up powerless. No followers, no family, no friends removed from whatever position that they tried so hard to gain. It's self-destructive. Oh, there goes my communion elements. We're gonna have to get another one of those. This is what happens. John goes on and he says this. He says, then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you don't take part in her sins and don't receive any of her plagues. In the middle of giving us this entire image, Jesus then comes into John's vision here and calls his people and says, my people come out of Babylon. Don't live this way. Don't participate in her sin. Resist the seduction so that you do not suffer her fate. And so the question though is, well, how do we do that? What's the exit plan for the people of God? I don't believe here that John's actually advocating for some sort of escapism. 
some withdrawal into the world. It's like, let's just go find a place in the desert that we can just sort of build a little community and then not have to worry about anybody else. I think what he's advocating for is that we live as kingdom citizens in the midst of this world, that we don't follow counterfeit kingdoms, but we live according to the kingdom of Christ. He's calling us to faithful presence and active resistance against evil in the world. So if spiritual fidelity manifests itself in the misuse of sex and money and power, then spiritual fidelity, being faithful to God in the midst of the world that we find ourselves should manifest itself in the stewardship of sex, money, and power. That we should live in ways that are counter the way that the world lives in these particular areas of life and so much more. But it should at least include the proper use and care of our influence, of bodies, and resources. That this should be what the people of God are about. This is why the scriptures are filled with the call for the people of God to do what? To serve others. See, we're called to use the influence and authority and power that we have as bearers of God's image to elevate others, not elevate ourselves and our own empires, but to elevate others and to elevate the kingdom of God in the world. Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So friends, in your home and your workplace, Are you primarily known as someone who serves? Your spouse and your children and your coworkers and your clients, when they think of us as the people of God, do they think of people that go out of their way to serve others, to elevate others, to encourage others, to create opportunities for others, to clear the path for other people? in our church, in our city, in our world, is that how we're known as the people of God? We just made a commitment here during child dedications that we will serve these kids and come alongside their parents. Kids ministry volunteers, come! Student ministry volunteers, come! We've just committed to saying that's how we're going to live with one another. In this city, in the world, Where are the places that we are offering our time and our talents and our wisdom and our strength? The question that should be at the forefront of our mind in all of our relationships should be, how can I serve? What can I give? What can I offer? What do I bring? How can I serve others in the name of Jesus in this place? The second thing is that we should be people that honor bodies like crazy Our bodies and other bodies. The people of God should be people who refuse to treat anyone's body in a manner that robs them of their dignity. This should not be what we do. This includes refraining from sexual activity outside of marriage because of what that actually says and does. Sex should be something that's shared in the in the confines of a covenant lifelong commitment. That's how to dignify it. To say, if I'm not going to share that with you and you're not going to share that with me unless we're going to share it with just us for the rest of our lives, that's how we dignify it. That's how we, it, we hold its beauty and its power together. But it extends way beyond that. The people of God should be people that honor the bodies of the unborn 
and honor the bodies of the elderly and honor the bodies of people of every age and every sex and every status and every color and say that we have to do this. This is why the church throughout our history, we started hospitals and shelters because we believe that we're called to care for the sick. It's why we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and welcome the immigrant and visit the prisoner. Because we people and their bodies matter and we want to honor them. And the third thing it means is we should share our resources. See, if sin seduces us to take what is not ours and to take what has not been given to us, then grace leads us to freely give everything that we freely received. Sin seduces us to take. Grace calls us to give. That certainly begins with tithing, but it certainly does not end there. In any means, it includes the pursuit of just economic practices in the world so that everybody can be guaranteed a living wage. Those things should not be counterintuitive to us as the people of God because we see everything as a gift. And we're willing to give it away because we don't seek our security in our own assets, but we seek our security in Christ. And so we live open-handed lives and say, how can I share what has been shared with me with you? Knowing that we don't have a God who has any sort of scarcity among him, but a God who freely gives so that we can freely give as well.